you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. LAist Studios. Yeah, like you just tell them your account number or maybe your phone number. I think they looked it up by phone number. This is me talking with my friend Sarah and Randy about going to the Korean video store when we were kids. Each of us remembers going to the store with our moms and having the clerks ask for our home phone numbers so they could look up our accounts. And then they would pencil in our transactions in a physical ledger. And then they manually write it. And they're just like, duk, 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 duk. wait, kids- what's do 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 do? Like the way that they take out videos. <laughs> <laughs> All you hear when you go in is like the sound of video oh, tape, like yeah. clicking, like hitting uh-huh. each other, right? It's like going to the Korean video store is such a key memory for us because back in the '90s, it was one of the few ways we could access Korean music or entertainment, right? It was either borrow VHS tapes from the Korean video store that had Korean TV programs on it or buy CDs from the Korean music store. When we were growing up, like K-pop wasn't easily accessible. You know, you didn't hear it on the radio. And if you wanted to listen to it, you had to go to a specific music store in Koreatown. They would have listening booths that you can listen to before buying the CDs, you know. And this was really it until the year 2000 or so when my friends and I got something called the Internet. Sarah, Randy, and I spent our middle school years chatting on AOL Instant Messenger, customizing our away messages while listening to MP3s that we illegally downloaded on apps like Napster or Kazaa. If you really wanted to pirate it, you had to know what you're downloading, which is also hard to do unless some friend introduced you to that group. After downloading a bunch of MP3s, we would burn them onto CDs that we decorated and wrote on with permanent marker. And then we would give the CD to someone else, like a friend or a crush. I loved swapping burned CDs. Even after iPods became a thing, there was still something so special about making someone a mixed CD. It was like I was getting to share music that was meaningful to me with the people who were meaningful to me. And when I look back on my mixed CD collection, it triggers so many memories. It's like I can organize the different periods of my life through these songs, like they're markers in time. Which brings me to this episode. This is K-Pop Dreaming. I'm Vivian Yoon, and in this episode, I'm going to make you a mixed CD with some of my favorite K-Pop songs from the 90s and 2000s. K-pop and I actually grew up around the same time. So as we go through each track, I'll explain what was happening in my life at the time and where K-pop was in its own evolution. We'll go through what people call the four generations of K-pop and see what made each era special, 
with extra emphasis on the first generation, which started back in 1996 and saw the birth of K-pop idol groups, and the second generation, which roughly covered the 2000s and became known as the golden age of K-pop. And we'll hear from Sarah and Randy throughout, too. I know, I know that song. Yeah, that was a very popular Korean song. So, let's get into it. Track number one, Candy by H.O.T. from 1996. H.O.T., or High Five of Teenagers, was the first K-pop group I knew about. And they were actually the first K-pop idol group to ever exist. And this song, Candy, it's actually hard to explain just how iconic it was. Everything about it was so memorable. From the fun, poppy melody to the dance moves, even the group's outfits were legendary. Like, they wore these colorful, baggy clothes with furry, puffy hats and gloves. Kind of like fuzzy, brightly colored snowboarder gear. Like, that was the vibe. But my friends and I loved H.O.T. And for me, and a lot of Koreans my age, H.O.T. holds a really special place in our hearts. Because it's so intimately tied to our childhoods and the nostalgia of growing up in the 90s. I have their gloves. I still have the candy gloves. The furry one. Yeah, it's yellow. It's like a mitten glove. You know that H.O.T. song, Candy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I would... <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, I would, like, jump on the bed up and down at my friend's place um, singing that song. As for me, when this song came out, I was living with my parents in an apartment in Koreatown, and I was surrounded by other Koreans all the time. I went to an elementary school in K-Town, And every day after school, I went to a Korean daycare center like a block away. Shout out to Heidi Academy. And then on Sundays, I would go to my church called LAKMC, or Los Angeles Korean Methodist Church. And all the Korean kids around me loved H.O.T. Even in elementary school, I remember kids dyeing their hair to look like certain members, or getting those long skinny bangs that the group made popular. And H.O.T. was actually designed to appeal to teenage girls in Korea. H.O.T. 자신이 다 합쳐야 된다. 그럼요. 방송 사상 가장 말을 많이 하고 있습니다 지금. This is H.O.T. on a Korean TV show with the person who essentially created them, Lee Soo-man. So Lee Soo-man founded a company called SM Entertainment, which put out a survey to teen girls asking what they wanted to see in a new pop group, and all these girls were like. We want boys that are cute and can sing and dance. And so that's what SM Entertainment created with H.O.T. And through H.O.T., SM really established the idol group formula that has come to be associated with K-pop today. SM과 함께 현재 글로벌 시장에서 활약하고 있는 여러 스타 콘텐츠를 프로듀싱하고 있습니다. The future of culture technology. When people talk about K-pop, they're usually referring to a specific kind of Korean popular music that comes out of the so-called idol industry. Basically, entertainment companies audition aspiring idols, train them to sing and dance, assemble trainees into groups, debut those groups with a hit song, usually on TV, and then manage and produce every aspect of the group's careers. 
that whole system and the music and culture that comes out of it, that is the K-pop industry. And it all started in the 90s with SM Entertainment and HOT. So the group was really revolutionary, and they kicked off the first generation of K-pop, which went from 1996 to the early 2000s. Right after HOT's debut, a bunch of other companies and labels started popping up with their own boy bands and girl groups that follow the formula established by SM Entertainment. These were groups like G.O.D., Baby Box, Xinhua, and all of these new groups had their own fan bases. Which brings me to track number two, Couple by Chicks Kiss. So the year this song came out, 1998, I actually visited Korea with my mom. And the entire country was in the grip of HOT fever. Like, their faces were everywhere on posters and snacks and merch. And this is why I was so shocked to find out that my older cousins were not fans of HOT. They were fans of another group called Chicks Kiss, who were HOT's rivals. And this was actually the first ever fandom rivalry in K-pop. So from the get-go, K-pop fans were super dedicated and organized. Like, there were official fan clubs with presidents and members. And HOT's fan club decided they would identify themselves by wearing white raincoats and holding white balloons at concerts. Sort of like a precursor to light sticks. And Chek's Kiss fans decided they would wear yellow raincoats and hold yellow balloons. The raincoats and balloons were sort of like wearing your favorite sports team's colors. Right? Like if you happen to be holding a yellow balloon in a white balloon section or vice versa, you would get cursed out and screamed at by other fans. Like it was intense. And part of what led to these really intense rivalries is that music television shows were a big part of K-pop where different groups would perform in the same show in front of a live audience. And fandoms would compete during the tapings of these shows to cheer for their group the loudest. My cousins weren't diehard fans. Like, they didn't scream at me for liking H.O.T. But that's what this song, Couple, reminds me of. That trip to Korea in the summer of 98, watching Korean TV with my cousins. And this year, in general, was big for me. Because right after I got back from Korea, I started getting bussed out to a new school in the Hollywood Hills called Wonderland Avenue Elementary. Which leads us to track number three. Dreams Come True by SES, 1998. I had the SES CD when I was in elementary school. So like in fifth grade or fourth grade, I remember having my like Sony CD player and I would take the SES CD to school and it feels so cool. But I only liked Dreams Come True, so I would only listen to one song over and over again from their album. Yeah. I remember sitting on the bus with my only friend at this new school, another Korean girl from K-Town, and listening to this SES song with her. All the Korean girls I knew loved SES because 
they were one of the first K-pop girl groups. And they had actually been created by SM Entertainment, the company that made H.O.T. And SES was just like H.O.T., but the girl version. And they were a huge deal. Like, they were the Spice Girls of Korea. Sarah remembers watching them on those videotapes she got at the Korean video store. I would always go to my friend's house and we would watch those and sing and dance along. And SES and H.O.T., they were all, they were all part of that. The same way that H.O.T. paved the way for every boy band that followed, SES blazed the trail for girl groups. They were the first to have the cute, wholesome girl group image, and they had a unique concept for their first album. So let's talk about concepts. You know how I said K-pop follows a certain formula? Well, part of that includes this idea of concepts, which are like visual and conceptual themes that a group might adopt for a particular album. Like you could have a high school student concept or a supernatural concept, sci-fi concept. Even things like sexy or cute can be concepts. And SES's concept was Innocent Fairy. Even though I like this song, I wasn't as into the group as other girls were. Which ended up being kind of indicative of this larger problem where I just didn't click with the girls at school. Especially the Korean girls. They were all girlier than I was and spoke in this, like, girl code that I could not follow. So at recess, while the Korean girls chatted about K-dramas and girl groups like SES, I was with the boys on the handball court, really taking out my feelings on that rubber ball. Because this is around the time that my parents separated. My mom moved out, and I stayed with my dad and grandma. But I still saw my mom on the weekends because she took me to church every Sunday. Church would eventually become a huge part of my life and be the place where I made my closest friends. But at this particular moment, I was just paying attention to the cool older kids at church who hung out in Koreatown. And all these older kids loved one song in particular. Track number four, One Time, by the group One Time, 1998. One time is one time. I feel like this song has burrowed its own little corner in my brain, like that's how memorable and catchy this chorus was. Even now, whenever I'm talking with Sarah and Randy and one of us says the phrase, one time, we all just bust out singing this. One time is one time for your mind. Even though I was in elementary school when this song came out, I could tell that this group was cool in a different way from other K-pop groups. Part of it was because they were a hip-hop group created by this company, YG Entertainment, whose brand was all hip-hop. Just compare this vibe to the poppy, wholesome sound of H.O.T. Very different. So one time stood out from other K-pop groups because of this hip-hop sound. But also, something about them felt really American to me. Like, their English pronunciation, the personality in their raps. Like, it all just felt more natural. And two of the group's members were Korean-American from L.A. And everyone in K-Town knew it. Which made one time extra cool. You want to go to one time concert on Friday? One time? For sure, but you got the tickets? 
Then I got to middle school. You already know the deal. I was into American pop culture because my dad related to the white kids at school watching MTV and King of the Hill. I remember wanting to look like Avril Lavigne in the music video for Complicated with her tiny tank top and baggy pants. But I was going through puberty and wasn't comfortable wearing anything tight, so I dressed like the boys in her videos instead and wore baggy skater clothes. And to go along with that vibe, I started learning how to play the drums and decided to join the praise band at church, which is how I met the person who would rescue me from feeling so alone in middle school. My friend, Randy. To anyone, eh, 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 eh. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. I didn't know much about Randy before joining the praise band at church. I knew he was a couple years older than me, and I had seen him speaking with his grandma in Korean, and they both had this really strong Pusan accent, which is like, you know, imagine a country twang kind of thing. But Randy was fun and popular, and he was always singing. He sang lots of Britney and Christina, but he also sang Korean songs too. Like this one. Track number five, Run to You by DJ Doc, 2000. Bounce with me, bounce with me, bounce with me, bounce. Okay, this was the ultimate K-pop party song. And the group that sang it, DJ Doc, was actually a hip-hop trio. The thing I remember about this song's music video is that during the chorus, the guys just raised the roof, and that was kind of it. The hip-hop groups in general back then did way less dancing than the pop idol groups. But this song reminds me of middle school Randy. Right? Like he was super fun, sang and danced all the time, and was just really happy and positive. And once I joined the praise band, the two of us hit it off. We would spend hours at church after everyone else had left, just playing the guitar and singing our favorite Christian songs. So, church played a big role in the Korean American community in LA. It was how a lot of us met and connected with each other and, like, found our social circles pre social media. So church was important for a lot of people. And it was extra vital for Randy and me because we both had tough home lives and used church as our escape. I think from everybody at the church, like you and I had very similar family backgrounds, you know, of of a broken family. And I think we bonded more that way too. Randy was going through his own thing at home. And for me... The feelings around my parents' divorce were finally starting to catch up to me. 
and I started feeling like it wasn't fair that my parents weren't together and my family didn't look like the perfect ones I saw on TV. Plus, middle school was hard. My grades were terrible because I couldn't get myself to do homework. I still didn't get along with the girls at school. And because I was starved for attention at home, I constantly tried to make friends with the teachers, which obviously made me kind of a weird kid. So it was a really emotional, angsty time for me as I dealt with all these feelings by myself. And I remember being glued to my CD player, listening to this one Jimmy Eat World song on repeat called My Sundown. I spent so many sad afternoons on the bus just listening to this song over and over again because it perfectly captured how I felt. The words to the song were literally... I could be so much more than this. Meanwhile, I kept seeing my mom on the weekends. My mom was very Korean, right? She was born and raised in Korea and didn't move to the States until she was pregnant with me. She didn't speak any English, just Korean. And I spoke to her in Konglish, a mixture of Korean and English. And while my dad was listening to classic rock bands like CCR, my mom was listening to Korean ballad singers like Cho Sung-mo. She also had an Andrea Bocelli phase, but that's besides the point. Anyway, every time I saw my mom, she had something for me. Candy or a toy. And one day, she gave me the CD for a Korean R&B duo called Fly to the Sky. I thought the group name was kind of silly and didn't think much of the CD. Until I listened to it. Which brings us to track number six, Sea of Love by Flight of the Sky from the year 2002. I instantly fell in love with this song. Like, I cannot tell you how many times I have sung this chorus in my life because I played this song to death. And it turns out this was Sarah's favorite song too. The song is actually about heartbreak. Like, the guys are saying, For the moon by the sea on the beach where you left me, I'm waiting for my tears to dry. That kind of thing. And I had a huge crush on one of the group's members, Brian Jew, who I thought was so cute. But Flight of the Sky was my first introduction to Korean R&B. By this point, the first generation of K-pop was well underway, and a ton of groups had come out in the six years since H.O.T. debuted. I just didn't know about those other groups because my access to K-pop was so limited. MTV and VH1 weren't playing K-pop music videos, and YouTube didn't even exist yet. So this Fly to the Sky CD was kind of all I had, until the eighth grade when I got a new next-door neighbor. So this girl, who was around my age, had been born in Korea and lived there for most of her childhood. She was a lot more connected with Korean music and culture. And when I went to her house, she showed me the Korean CD collection she had in her room, which wasn't massive, but was still bigger than my collection of one. And looking through her CDs is how I discovered this next song. Track number seven, Kill or Road by G.O.D., 2001. I'm 
G.O.D., short for Groove Overdose, was a legendary first-generation R&B group. And G.O.D. was it for R&B in Korea at the time. They were the golden standard, selling out stadiums and having fans cry over them in concerts, etc. They were at that level. Their balloon color, by the way, was sky blue. But G.O.D. was known for their vocals and storytelling. Like, you know how sometimes you'll sing along to certain songs and then realize you have no idea what the words are even saying? G.O.D. was the opposite of that. Their biggest hits were all so memorable because of the lyrics. I could give a ton of examples, but this song in particular really spoke to me. Because at the time, I was totally consumed by existential thoughts. Like, I was contemplating the nature of the universe and wondering what my purpose in life was. And this song is about someone trying to figure out their path in life. The words to the chorus are, Why am I on this road? Is this really my path? Will my dreams come true at the end of this road? And this was the first time I felt like a Korean song access part of my feelings that American music just couldn't. There was something in the language that didn't translate to English, like poetry. So that's G.O.D. And by the mid-2000s, the first generation of K-pop came to an end, as a ton of first-generation groups disbanded or made their way out. So the generations of K-pop are like waves that ebb and flow, And while first-generation groups were tapering off, a whole new wave of artists and groups started entering the scene, ushering in what's known as the second generation of K-pop, also known as the golden age of K-pop. The people who kicked off this generation were artists and groups like Seven, Rain, Boa, TVXQ. All of them were insanely popular and developed a huge presence, not just in Korea, but in Asia overall. But I wasn't really paying attention to K-pop in the mid-2000s. Because I was starting high school. When it came time for me to go to high school, all I wanted was to go to Palisades High, which is where Randy and Sarah went. But I ended up going to the high school across the street from my dad's house instead, LA High. Which was not great. Like... Randy and Sarah were going to school by the beach and hanging out in the SoCal sun. L.A. High, on the other hand, had strong prison vibes. Like, it was all concrete and brick and asphalt, chain-link fences. There was a constant police presence on campus. So I wasn't super happy at L.A. High, and I quickly entered a depressive emo phase. I listened to bands like Taking Back Sunday, Brand New, and other melancholy stuff like early modest mouse and explosions in the sky. And I just lived for the weekends. It got to the point where as soon as I got home from school on Friday afternoon, I would immediately meet up with Randy and we would head to church. I remember times when you would just come out, walk over to my place and we would walk like almost a 10 mile, I feel like I want to say 10 mile walk to church, you know? No way, that was not 10 miles, you think? I don't know. Felt like 10 miles because we stopped in the middle and asked our friends for a cup of water at their place before continuing our trek to church. Yeah. Church was my lifeline, and it's where I met my very first boyfriend, Han. Han is not his real name, but Sarah and Randy and everyone else at church were shocked when Han and I got together because we were so different. 
Like, I wore baggy skater clothes, and Han dressed like an L.A. gangster. He had buzzed hair, wore white tees with khaki dickies and Nike Cortezes. And Han hung out with the cool K-Town kids who drank and smoked and repped the neighborhood really hard. Han and his friends all had the letters KPX in their AIM screen names, which was a very 2000s K-Town thing to do. KP stood for Korean pride, and then the X was like a space. I, of course, did not have KPX in my screen name because I wasn't repping the neighborhood. Anyway, Han was full of KP, Korean pride, and listened to Korean hip-hop, and he pretty much introduced me to the genre. So Korean hip-hop existed outside of the K-pop idol sphere at the time. Like from the 90s onward, hip-hop had sort of splintered off to become its own thing and developed on a parallel track to K-pop. And Han introduced me to these Korean rappers and hip-hop groups that I had never heard of. Like Dynamic Duo and Epic High. Epic High, by the way, would eventually go on to become the first K-pop group to perform at Coachella in 2016. But Han and my favorite song was by a different rapper. Track number eight. I Love You, Oh Thank You by MC Mong from 2005. This is easily one of my favorite K-pop songs ever. It's catchy, the way MC Mong raps is really fun. And it features this singer named Kim Tae-woo, who is actually a member of that legendary R&B group I talked about earlier, G.O.D. But the song was so fun to sing and rap along to, and I remember being really determined to memorize it so I could sing it at karaoke. I looked up the Korean lyrics online. I can't remember if I used Yahoo or Naver or what, but I definitely remember printing them out and memorizing them. And the thing that makes me laugh about this song is just how romantic it is. Like, it's in the title, I love you, oh thank you. And the words are like, Our love is like the sun that doesn't cool down. It's like a night full of countless stars that bless us. Like, it's very much an earnest profession of love. And it reminds me of how intense Han and I were. Like, we were so dramatic in that high school way where all of our emotions were dialed up to 10 all the time. I even remember a moment where Randy, Han, and I went to the beach, and the two of them screamed into the ocean to get their feelings out. Sort of like that one scene in Garden State where Natalie Portman and Zach Braff scream into a pit. That's what Han and Randy did at Santa Monica Beach. And I'd actually forgotten, but Sarah and Randy loved this song too. The three of us sang it together at karaoke all the time. Like in high school, I feel like I got really into like MC Mong and I would like rap. Remember we would sing I love you or thank you? (laughs) Anyway, that's what this song reminds me of. The intensity of your first love. Han wasn't just into Korean hip hop, though. He liked other kinds of Korean music, too, which is how I learned about this next song. Track number nine, Timeless by SG Wannabe, 2004. Yeah. 
SG Wannabe was a ballad trio, and they were kind of novel because they didn't fit the idol image of K-pop. They were only vocalists, they didn't dance, but it was like everyone understood they didn't have to dance because their singing was just that good. So remember, mid-2000s, we're in the second generation of K-pop, and this is when things really start to change in the industry because in 2005, we see the release of a little website called YouTube. And through YouTube, people outside of Korea are able to access K-pop and K-pop music videos in ways they just hadn't been able to before. And beyond YouTube, the K-pop industry was changing too. You started seeing more groups with lots of members, like nine members or even 13. And some groups started adopting edgier, sexier concepts, which was pretty new for K-pop. But the biggest change was that K-pop started crossing over into the U.S. Okay, the Wonder Girls are here. That's coming up after the break. The journalists in the LAS newsroom work for you. I'm LAS higher education correspondent Adolfo Guzman Lopez. What students are speaking about it is extremely valid. My reporting is about how students use higher education toward a better life. For the first time since being in this campus, it made me feel unsafe. Struggling through challenges like ethnicity, class, poverty, and family pressures. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. In the late 2000s, I headed off to college. And Sarah, Randy, and I started seeing each other less because we were all at different schools and didn't go to the same church anymore. And at college, I made a bunch of new Korean-American friends who were kind of like me. They enjoyed K-pop in private, but mostly we were all into American pop culture. And we couldn't fathom the idea of non-Koreans enjoying K-pop. Which is why I was so surprised when I acted in this play for something called Korean Culture Night. Korean Culture Night, or KCN, was pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It was a night to celebrate Korean culture. I didn't really get involved for the Korean culture part so much as, like, I wanted to explore acting, and this felt like a very low-stakes, safe way to do that. So I was in this play, and during the intermission, there was this dance group that came out and performed a K-pop dance medley. But the thing about this dance group was that it was made up of all non-Koreans. So this was around 2011, and up to this point, I had never encountered people who were not Korean that even knew about K-pop, let alone liked it. And these kids were so into K-pop, like they spent a ton of time learning K-pop dances, filming dance covers, posting them on YouTube. And once I realized this was a thing where non-Koreans were learning K-pop dances, I immediately went to YouTube to investigate. And I realized that K-pop actually had fans all over the world. It wasn't just kids from the U.S., but people in Thailand and the Philippines and Canada were posting K-pop dance covers and tutorials. And as I kept watching these videos, 
I got the itch to learn one myself. Which brings us to track number 10, G by Girls' Generation, from 2009. Girls' Generation is a classic second-generation group. They started out with nine members, and their concept was a wholesome, girl-next-door kind of image. And this was one of the most iconic songs at the time because of the dance and the music video. And honestly, I was obsessed. I used to learn them at home by myself and then, like, not tell anybody. What? What? Yeah. So I learned G. Oh, Vivian. What? I would have done it with you. <laughs> I learned I learned nobody by myself and would dance it in front of the mirror for myself. I love that dance so much. But I would have done the GGG for sure. The other song Randy mentioned, Nobody, that was by a group called Wonder Girl. And Nobody was actually the first K-pop song to crack the American music charts. And Wonder Girl started showing up on American TV shows like So You Think You Can Dance and The Wendy Williams Show. On today's show, pop music's newest sensation, Wonder Girls. How you doing? I'm definitely drawn more towards the girl groups like Sonia Shide and Wonder Girls because... They truly did try to cross over here where they performed on American stages and talk shows, you know, and stuff like that. And then Wonder Girls toured with Jonas Brothers. Oh, did they really? This is a huge marker of the second generation of K-pop. The biggest groups at the time started cracking the American music charts and appearing on late night shows. They even collaborated with American artists in an attempt to cross over to the U.S. And in the early 2010s, the biggest second-generation groups started touring outside of Asia for the first time, including one of the biggest boy bands of the era. Which brings me to track number 11, Lies by Big Bang. This song is actually from 2007, but I didn't know about it until like 2011-ish when Big Bang started getting really big outside of Korea. So everything about Big Bang was kind of dramatic and edgy. They wore thick black eyeliner and had this attitude in the way they rapped and danced and full-on acted in their music videos. Sarah loved Big Bang too. I liked T.O.P. the best from Big Bang, like always. He was like always just, I'm still a strong, I, silent type. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that, that mysterious. Like, <laughs> fun fact a lot of millennial K pop fans actually point to Big Bang music videos on YouTube as their point of entry into K pop. Like, this was their gateway. Another fun fact about Big Bang they created what's considered to be the first official K pop light stick for concerts, and theirs had a spiky yellow crown at the end that lit up. So we're in the late 2000s, and this is around the time that we saw the rise of something called the Big Three, the top three entertainment companies that dominated the era, SM, YG, and JYP. 
Each of these companies was headed by a former artist turned producer, and all three were responsible for creating the biggest K-pop groups and artists at the time, including Big Bang, Girls' Generation, and Wonder Girls. But as big as these groups were, K-pop still didn't become mainstream in America. Even though the groups were showing up on talk shows and cracking the US music charts, the average American person still wasn't aware of K-pop. Until the summer of 2012. Track number 12, Gangnam Style by Psy. Okay, so this was a huge moment for K-pop because it basically ended the second generation in one fell swoop. The video for Gangnam Style came out on July 15th, 2012, and it quickly overtook Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen to become the top-viewed music video on YouTube. Fun fact, American music superstar T-Pain was actually one of the first celebrities to tweet about it. Later, other celebrities shared it on Twitter, like... Britney Spears, Katy Perry, Tom Cruise. But Psy quickly became a viral sensation and performed at Dodger Stadium and went on The Ellen Show. So I danced uh, to this, uh, this new song, Gangnam Style. Uh, but this, this video... Is- he even made an appearance on SNL. And it was like suddenly everyone in America was singing Oppa Gangnam Style and doing the invisible horse dance. Which was really confusing to me. Like, of all people, why Psy? Which was kind of the Korean music industry's reaction, too. Because Psy was a rapper who was outside of the K-pop idol sphere. He was basically an outsider who had produced music independently for most of his career before finally signing with one of the big three. So no one was looking to Psy to become K-pop's representative to the world. Gangnam Style's success was also surprising because... The song was so culturally specific. Gangnam is a wealthy neighborhood in Korea, and the song is like a parody or satire of the lifestyle of people who live there. So a ton of people were confused. I think um, um, size, um, Oppa Gangnam style, style? when that came up and we started hearing it on American radio, I was like, what is going on, you know? And I actually, yeah. I actually, oh, what is that was weird. And at the time, I wasn't yeah. super hyped about that either because people would, random people would come up to you, and, oh, you're Korean, oh, Bakangnam style, and do that dance. I, know. I just, I was like, why are you doing that, dude? Like, <laughs> it's so true. I was so yeah. annoyed by it. Yeah. yeah, it's mixed feelings. You're proud of that, but at the same time, you're like, can you not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly the feeling. Can you not? Yes. Yeah. But it was it was cool that K-pop was crossing over slowly, but I I don't think I took it in with open arms when it first came, you know? Yeah. yeah. For Randy, it was clear that these people didn't see him as a real person, but as a two-dimensional Asian figure whose Koreanness instantly linked him to this song. And I didn't know Randy had had this experience. Because in 2012, Sarah, Randy, and I were in totally different places. Sarah and Randy had already been out of college for a few years by then and had, like, real jobs. And I had just finished school and started running a cafe in Koreatown on Olympic Boulevard. The cafe was super fun at first. Then I got really depressed being stuck there all day, and I felt super alone. Until... 
Randy broke his leg and he had to stay home, which was right down the street from my cafe. So he started coming to the cafe every day. Hello, hello, hello. Hi. And then Sarah started coming. Hi. So while Sai was breaking records and becoming the first video to reach a billion views on YouTube, Sarah, Randy, and I were starting to hang out more. And by the time the song faded from the limelight, we were fully back in each other's lives, going to karaoke and getting dinner and just like trying to figure out how to become people. We were figuring out who we were and what we wanted and just on our way to becoming adults. And every time the three of us hung out, the conversation naturally drifted to our middle school and high school days, reliving all those fun moments we had. And Vivian was like the ultimate tomboy with a ponytail like she has now and a boy sweater like she has on right now. <laughs> Randy eventually moved to the Bay Area and Sarah and I started taking yearly road trips up north to visit him. And on our car rides, we would listen to old K-pop songs and talk about the good old days. It's been a whole decade since Gangnam Style captured the world's attention. And K-pop has changed a lot since then, with third-generation groups like BTS and Blackpink who made K-pop a global genre. Social media also became a thing, giving fans way more power than ever before. And K-pop news has become global news as business outlets report on the fiscal impact of BTS going to the military. And now we have fourth-generation groups coming out with future-forward concepts revolving around things like AI and the metaverse. When I was putting together this playlist, looking back on my life, I realized it wasn't just the music that was constant. It was also my friends. Like, through all these different feelings and periods of my life, my friends had been there. Even when the girls at school thought I was weird or I felt rejected by my parents for whatever reason, Sarah and Randy, they didn't just accept me for who I was. They loved me. And I loved them. Just this week, Sarah showed me this K-pop group called NCT Dream, who put out a cover of the song Candy by H.O.T. The first group we ever loved. And as we listened to the song, it sent us right back down that same road of talking about the good old days when we were just kids growing up in Koreatown. The church people hated us. And like, I would get, I would get AIM messages from church members like, you guys are so clicky. Wait, what? I didn't know that. Oh Who? yeah, we were popular. <laughs> Nobody ever messaged me or cared that I was hanging out with you guys. Because they all had crushes on you. Nobody would have the had tomboy Vivian. No, after after <laughs> she, she had her makeover and she wore her first skirt. <laughs> Next time on K-pop dreaming. Some people say K-pop contains an elusive element that gives it a distinct flavor, and that element comes from a century-old genre of Korean music. In the next episode, we go back to the 1930s when my grandmother was growing up in Seoul, Korea, listening to a new genre of music that would give K-pop its soul. 
할머니 어려서부터 듣던 그 음악이거든. K-pop Dreaming is written and hosted by me, Vivian Yoon. The show is a production of Elliest Studios. Fiona Ng is our senior producer and show creator. Our producers are James Chow, Minju Park, and me, Vivian Yoon. Sophia Paliza Carr is our editor. This episode is sound designed by James Chow. Gloria Oh is our Korean researcher, translator, and fact checker. Parker McDaniels is our mix engineer. Taylor Kaufman is our director. Original music by Stephen Tran. Jens Campbell is our intern. Special thanks to Jacqueline Kim, Quincy Sir-Smith, Tamar Herman, Michelle Cho, Sarah Wan, Randy Lee, Topher Ruth, and the Berkeley Advanced Media Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. LAS Studios. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.